And I am you And you are me It's just a crazy storm Hello and welcome to Action Packed, the travel podcast. I'm Peter. And I'm Felice. Together we've spent half a lifetime travelling to just about every corner of the world, making a living as travel riders part of what we like doing best. And that's skiing, biking, beaches, hiking and a whole lot more. Each week, Action Packed gives us the opportunity to share with you on the show some of these great experiences and the amazing people we meet along the way. Right now, real travel is limited to a daily walk around our local park. But the world will one day return to normal. Meanwhile, dreams are risk-free and they're always available. You can find out more about us on our website, actionpacktravel.com. We'll regularly be posting links and show notes and loads of other useful stuff. If you like what you hear, please click on the subscribe button and listen to more episodes. This week we're talking to Peter Mason daredevil adventurer and expedition leader of the first hot air balloon flight over Everest. For the past 40 years, Peter's circumnavigated the globe on an annual basis in search of fresh thrills and sometimes spills. With surely only a couple of his nine lives left intact, he now lives in semi-retirement with his wife Sheila in his native Australia. We caught up with him poolside over a glass of Pinot Noir at the end of a long day on the golf course. Yes, in Queensland, you could still play golf in lockdown. Peter, welcome to the show. Now, you followed a highly successful career as a newspaper reporter and foreign correspondent with a second life as a commercial balloon pilot. However, did this come about? Well, it's a long story, but I think we've got a bit of time to talk about it. I, uh, I, I've been working as a journalist for all my, all my life, uh, from the age of 17. And uh, it was now uh, 1987. I was on the news. I was news editor of the London Daily News, which is Robert Maxwell's new startup, seven-day-a-week London newspaper, a 24-hour-a-day paper, which everyone said wouldn't work in the UK. And they weren't wrong because it lasted five months and folded, at which point I found myself unemployed and at the age of 44, virtually unemployable because I couldn't go back to my old job with my tail between my legs. I couldn't think of anything else I might do in Fleet Street that would further my career. And I thought, maybe it's time for change. So I hit on this idea of starting up a hot air balloon company, as one does. I went home. I said to Sheila, I've got this wonderful idea how we can restart and make a living for ourselves after being made redundant. I'll start a hot air balloon company. And she looked aghast and said, in that case, I'll go and get a job, which she did. And I started the, I started the balloon company. And after three months, when she realized that I was serious about what I was doing and that we could make a living out of it, she joined me as my partner, and we set up the aerial display company, which ran for over 20 years. Did you have any experience of hot air ballooning at this stage? I had been involved in quite a few hot air balloon projects. And in fact, um, I, I used to write a column for the Daily Express in my spare time. Not that I had much of it, but what spare time I had, I used to go out and indulge myself to the full in adventure sports. Uh, things like hang gliding, skydiving, ballooning flying microlight aircraft, rock climbing, scuba diving, anything that had a bit of an adrenaline rush to it. Oh, and downhill skiing, of course. And I wasn't very good at it, but I, I was quick. And uh, I got involved in all these adventure activities. And I didn't just go out there and do the things. I didn't just go and ski or skydive or hang glide or dive the ocean depths. I would actually go out there and get a license that qualified me to do it properly. And I actually learned the skills. And ballooning was one of those skills. 
So how do you actually go about becoming a balloon pilot? You were sitting at your desk at the Daily News and you decided I'm going to be a balloon pilot. What's the next step? Yeah, it wasn't quite that simple. But uh, I, I mean, first of all, if I was to make a living out of ballooning, I had to find a client, a client who felt that a hot air balloon was a good medium for promoting the company and a good way of entertaining guests and for projecting one's name at a higher level and on a different plane. Uh, so I had to find a client, and, and I, I hit upon this idea. I, I, I learned that it was the Financial Times' 100th anniversary coming up the following year, 1988. And uh, I thought, now, wouldn't it be a great ways to build a bullet, design and build a balloon in the shape of a rolled-up newspaper? I went to the Financial Times with this proposal, and I said, look, I know you probably think I'm mad, but if you put your name on this balloon, and, of course, the balloon as it came out at the end looked like a rolled-up copy of the FT. If you put your name on this balloon, I'll fly it all over the world. I'll project your image and I'll promote your name and I'll elevate your 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 position in the in the in the newspaper marketplace. And they said, "Well, oh, that's a good idea. Let's have a go at it." So they signed a contract and they gave me some money. I went and designed and built a balloon for them, and uh, well, the rest of us is history. But I understand, Peter, there was just one rather major problem. Oh, what well, do you mean? The fact that I hadn't actually formed a company at that time and didn't have a balloon pilot's license. I wouldn't say bluffed my way around the problem. I, I, I worked around it in a sensible way. I said, look, I do have quite a lot of groundwork to do before I can put this thing into action. But they were patient. They weren't in a hurry. They also knew that I was hungry, so I would work very hard to make sure it succeeded. The first thing I did, once the FT said, yes, we like the idea, can we go with it? I got on the phone to Robin Batchelor, who was an old friend of mine. He was a very well-known UK balloon pilot. Still is. In fact, still flies to this day. And um, he had recently taught Richard Branson to fly a balloon, so he had a good pedigree. I signed I signed um, Robin up and for the next six weeks worked very hard, morning and evening, learning the, learning the skills of flying a balloon. Because it's not just getting in the basket, turning on the burner, and off you go. You've got to actually study the same curriculum that commercial airline pilots use, for example, because we're all flying in the same airspace. So if you're flying a balloon commercially around airports and around cities, you have to have the same kind of knowledge that the pilot has. So it's quite hard work in terms of learning navigation, meteorology, systems, how everything works. And being in charge of a balloon is like being in charge of an airplane. It is an aircraft and you have to be licensed to fly it. So it took me a few months to get my private license, and from there I then went on and got my commercial license. Hard work, but worth every penny. How do you actually steer a balloon? Well, you don't. The wind steers for you. You go with the direction of the wind. Uh, balloons have no motive power of their own. They have no engine, no rudder, no ailerons, no flaps, no controls like an aeroplane. You blow the balloon up. It's a big bag of hot air, basically, and you always inflate the balloon upwind of where you want to fly to and land. So if you want to take off at, say, your house in Winchester and fly to Basingstoke, you need to find a, a, a launch site that is in line, downwind or upwind of your destination. You then work out your wind speed, which may be eight or 10 knots at a thousand feet. You know that when you take off five to a thousand feet, you will fly in a northeasterly direction for 18 miles and at 20 knots, it will take you nine minutes to fly that distance. You know, So your trajectory is determined by the wind direction. And if you want to steer by climbing and descending, because the wind varies in direction at different heights, you can steer the balloon left and right by climbing and descending. And that's how you pinpoint your landing point. You come in to land. And if you're good and lucky, and it helps to be both, you land. 
How do you know which way to go? Does the um, balloon have a sat-nav or do you just do it visually? Well, these days, yes, most pilots would carry a sat-nav device. In those days, when I started flying in the, in the, in the early 1980s, um, I had been flying balloons before I actually went out to get my license, but I hadn't, I hadn't been a licensed pilot. But I had done quite a bit of flying with other pilots, and I did know how to navigate and how to read a map. It's it much easier these days to have a sat-nav because it tells you where you, exactly where you are, what town you're flying over. In those days, all you had was a latitude and longitude. You always fly visual with the balloon. You don't fly at night. You don't fly in cloud. So you've got a map and you take off and you're, and you're only flying at five or ten knots, which is, you know, six or 12 miles an hour. You take off and you fly and you use your map to guide you. So you know you're flying over this village or that village and you know exactly where you are at all times. Well, the thing that's always puzzled me is how do you land and how do you decide where to land? And do, do, can you land anywhere? Pretty much, although you have to take take cognizance of uh, of the local uh, of the lay of the land. You have to make sure you don't fly low over horses or livestock and frighten them. That you don't anger farmers, for example. Some farmers don't like balloons landing in their on their property. Most of them are in fact quite agreeable to it. And these days, most commercial balloon operators have an agreement with their local farmers, and they pay them a fee for every time they land or take off. But normally, you you land where there's a clear bit of ground. A rugby field is good, a school playground, provided there aren't children playing in it, even a road if it's empty, and uh, you cho- you choose your landing spot when you take off. As you take off, you look ahead, you work out, you calculate your wind speed, your direction, the time to destination, and you say, I could reach that point in 25 minutes, I will aim to land there, and by climbing and descending, you can steer the balloon into a landing area. So while you're, learn- while you're learning how to become a balloon pilot, Presumably someone is building this magnificent balloon for you. Yes, indeed, they were. How do you build a balloon? Well, you go to a manufacturer like uh, Don Cameron, Cameron Balloons in Bristol, or to Pearl in Strand in Oslo Street. Um, there are manufacturers in other countries, Spain, Ultramagic, uh, the USA, Balloon Works. You take your idea to a balloon manufacturer and you say, this is what we want to do. Can you, can you turn this artwork or this drawing or this concept into a machine that will fly? And some of them are very difficult. I mean, we had the Financial Times, for example, 110 feet tall, three peaks, like a rolled-up copy of a newspaper, like, like an aspirin cone in shape. Uh, and every single letter, every single word on the side of the balloon was painted on by hand. There were 100,000 characters altogether, all of which I wrote. I put the whole thing together like I was editing the newspaper, like I was preparing a newspaper publication. So it, be- it became a, a flying copy of a newspaper. Then, having got the balloon, you had your maiden FT flight. Where was that? Over Tower Bridge in London. And sadly, I wasn't there for the flight. I had to bring in, in fact, I brought in Crispin Williams, who was one of my instructors, uh, who worked for the balloon manufacturing company. I brought him in to fly it for us over Tower Bridge. Sheila and I were on our way back from the United States, where we had just achieved uh, a new world altitude record with Pearl Instrand, who, who manufactured our FT balloon. And we'd reached a height of 65,000 feet in a hot air balloon, World record, never been broken to this day. This was in 1988, so we're talking over 30 years ago. And I wasn't, we weren't able to be at the launch of the FT, but we were, we then took the FT on a, a European tour, followed by a world tour. We flew the balloon all together in 38 countries and over every, almost every capital city in the world. Certainly in Europe, North America, Australasia, and parts of Asia. Oh, and South America, I mustn't forget um, Rio de Janeiro. So, Having done this fairly remarkable feat, you then looked to a higher mountain to climb. 
a company approached me and asked me if I would be prepared to put together a team and a project to fly a holiday balloon over the summit of Mount Everest. I was a bit taken aback at first. I thought it's never been done before. There have been attempts that have been unsuccessful. It's fraught with danger, flying over the Himalayas, the highest mountain peak and the highest mountain range in the world, flying over the highest peak in the world, 29,000 feet. At the time we were planning to do the Everest flight, there were no hot air balloons that were designed to fly any distance at all at that kind of altitude. We're talking about flying over a mountain that's nearly 30,000 feet high. So you're looking at a balloon that can fly at 35 to 40,000 feet to give clearance to the mountain. So we required that a special balloon had to be built and a special burner also had to be built, designed specifically for the job. Uh, we put together a team of 14 crew, which included cameramen, sound men, technicians, engineers. On top of that, we had 20 Sherpas, 50 porters, 90 yaks, a helicopter, and a high-altitude plane, a Pilatus porter. We had two cameramen, one in each of the balloons, plus a film crew on the ground who were making a film for National Geographic and also Channel 4 television. I was project director and expedition leader. The whole project took three years to assemble and to succeed in flying over Everest. We had two unsuccessful attempts, one of them interrupted by a coup d'etat in Nepal, followed by the third, which succeeded in 1991. And it was quite an achievement. I mean, no one's ever done that flight since, and nobody needs to, because you can't break a world record for the first time twice. I mean, who remembers the second man to fly the Atlantic solo after Lindbergh? How did it feel achieving something like that? It must have been amazing. No, it was, yeah, it was good. It was a good, good, good warm feeling. It, it, it took a lot out of us. It took a lot out of the company as well, because at that time, we'd gone from, from being quite a small mom and pop company with just two or three small clients. We had already acquired three or four other clients at that time, Hawker Sidley, Lucas Aerospace, Star Micronics, who financed the Everest Expedition, um, Motorola, Longman Chronicle, the publisher, the educational publisher. And during the course of putting this project together, it took us three years and it took a lot out of us. And it also meant that we couldn't concentrate as much as we would have liked on building the core business, which was flying special shape balloons to promote clients as an advertising publicity medium. So we did take a bit of a, a knock on that. And it took us a few years to recover from that and to get our feet. And then along came Michelin. Kept the business going for a, a good few years after we had considered selling the business and retiring, but we got a, a magnificent contract with Michelin, the French tire manufacturer, it's an international company, in fact. They wanted to commemorate the 100th birthday of Bibendum, the Michelin man. And uh, we came up with the idea of building a hot air balloon in the shape of the Michelin man. And we thought that would be, they'd be quite happy to have one of those. In, in actual fact, they ordered four and seven regular shaped balloons. So we ended up with the world's biggest order of hot air balloons, 11 balloons in one contract which we operated around the world for nearly five years. Once you've got the hardware, once you've built, you've invested the capital to build the balloons and you've made a reputation for yourself flying them all over the world, you want to keep doing it. And Michelin couldn't let go. So they actually carried on with the contract for another five years after the initial year. And it was a lot of fun. We, we had four Michelin man special shaped balloons that sort of 175 feet tall, enormous, big, among the biggest balloons ever built. Difficult to fly, heavy to work with, hard to pack away, required a pilot and four crew minimum, sometimes six, uh, and big vehicles and a big trailer. 
and a lot of hard work, a lot of planning went into flying. We had these balloons flying all over the world. One time we had 11, 11 Michelin balloons in the air at any one time, all over the world. It was quite a, quite a handful. And you once flew over the Niagara Falls. Was that with Michelin as well? That was for the Financial Times. That was back in 1992. We were doing shooting a calendar for the 100th anniversary of the FT turning pink. Because initially the FT was white like every other newspaper. And in 1893, it changed color and became pink because they thought it would be more, it, it would stand out more against its competitors. So we took the balloon around the world. We took it to Wadi Rum in Jordan for King Hussein's birthday. We took it to China. We took it to Hong Kong, to Singapore, to all over Europe, Eastern Europe as well. We flew Warsaw, Prague. We took it to Moscow. And every one of these venues was a photo shoot. And every photo shoot provided us with pictures for this amazing calendar that we produced, 5,000 copies, limited edition, for the FT's favoured clients. I still have a copy in my drawer, and it's, it's a treasured possession. I mean, we, we flew the balloon in front of the World Trade Centre in New York. And there must have been some difficult moments, and indeed some dangerous moments. There have been a few interesting moments, I'd call them. Um, I've not had any serious mishaps with the balloon. I've not had any accidents. I've had a couple of what you might call heavy landings. But the joke in ballooning is that any landing you walk away from is a good one because a balloon landing is in, in, in actual fact a controlled crash. And how well you control it depends on how happy your passenger your passengers are and how well the flight can be deemed to have gone. I mean, somebody asked me once, how do you land a balloon? You choose a bit of land to land in and you come and you try and put the balloon down there. It's quite hard sometimes. You have to you know, sometimes come down quite quickly, come in fast, and it can be a bit hairy. A balloon landing is a controlled accident, and any landing you walk away from is a good one. And I've had lots and lots and lots of good landings, about 3,000 in total. I've had one or two interesting landings, yes. Yeah, I mean, bad in the sense that, yes, I had an accident flying doing a balloon race in the Alps in 1998. Every year there is a big balloon, an Alpine balloon festival in a, a, a town called Chateau Day in Switzerland, which is quite near to Gestad, and it attracts some of the world's top balloonists and their sponsors, up to 100 balloons at a time attend, and watching the launch in that mountainous terrain in that lovely alpine region surrounded by snow-capped peaks, it's, it's a sight to behold. We, we took the Financial Times balloon there, I think, eight times. We launched the Michelin, the Michelin balloon team in Chateau Day in 1998, and it was at that launch that I took part in, in one of the annual transalpine balloon races called the David Niven Trophy, the Coupe de David Niven, named after the famous actor who lived in Chateau Day for many years and who, in fact, is buried in the cemetery right next to the balloon launch field. So when you take off, you look down at the ground and there you can see David Niven's grave. And every year they have a, a, a Coupe de David Niven and it's a long-distance balloon race. You take off from Chateau Day and fly as far as you can, as far as the wind will take you. I think the record is something like 676 kilometers, and they ended up in in uh, eastern Yugoslavia, as it was then. Um, I was taking part in that long-distance race in 1998 at the launch of the Michelin balloons, and we ran into some bad weather. We were given a forecast that indicated it would be clear of cloud uh, and that there was no wind or light winds in the Rhone Valley. As it turned out, it was cloud cover. The whole, the whole of the Alpine region was socked in. We didn't see the ground from when we flew over uh, Lausanne until we hit the ground 176 kilometers later 
on the edge of the Rhone Valley where the Mistral was hurtling along at 100 miles an hour. When we came into land, the wind was blowing quite hard. We were traveling at about 70 knots, which is about 75 miles an hour, 400 feet a minute down. And we went through trees. I got knocked out of the basket. The balloon flew on for another half a mile and landed, came to rest at the edge of a ravine with a thousand foot drop at the other side. I ended up in hospital with a fractured wrist, cracked sternum, four broken ribs, internal injuries, facial lacerations, and a dislocated knee, which almost required amputation. And that's the only time I've actually had a bad landing, a wonderful flight, but a bad landing. And it doesn't happen very often. And in fact, I still maintain ballooning is the safest form of aerial travel. But that, that's the only time I can think of that I had a had what I would call an accident, that it wasn't doing a passenger flight or flying clients for, you know, flying, flying guests for a client. It was taking part in a transalpine balloon race, which is totally different. It's like, like the difference between driving to the supermarket and driving in a race car. Well, Peter, you specialize in, in narrow escapes. Indeed, you've written a book called Narrow Escapes, I believe. Yes, the book of narrow escapes. Yes, one of, one of my pet projects back in the 80s. Yes. And Peter, you had another narrow escape yourself, I believe. You jumped out of a plane and had a parachute problem? Yes, I did. I, in fact, I, it was my 13th parachute jump, funnily enough, and it was at a place called Pope Valley in California. I'd gone over on behalf of the Daily Express with the British parachute team in training for the World Championships. And one of the things, one of the reasons why I'd gone was because one of their star jumpers was a woman, and there weren't very many women in competitive parachuting at that time. This is in the late 1970s. And because I had just started parachuting myself, I thought I'd do a couple of jumps with the team. I mean, and they were quite keen I should do that because it sort of gave, gave, put me in the heart of the action. And on the first jump I did, uh, I was using a parachute that I was unfamiliar with, packed not by myself, but by one of the other parachutists. And I always pack my own parachute. That's one of the secrets of successful parachuting. Pack your own chute. You take a lot more care over it. Um, when I exited the aircraft, which I was unfamiliar with, I think I jumped out at about five and a half thousand feet, did a 30 second free fall, went to my rip cord, nothing happened. It was jammed. And I kept struggling trying to open. Now the instructions they give you are, if you can't get your rip cord, if you can't pull your rip cord after two attempts, give up and pull your reserve. But I, I wasn't prepared to do that. I wanted to get my, my big parachute open. So I kept pulling it and pulling it and pulling it until finally I gave up get, and pulled my reserve at 700 feet which, as they said afterwards, is like three seconds before the lights go out because your terminal velocity is 125 miles an hour. So you're falling quite quickly. You haven't got time to make quick decisions. And if you don't make a quick decision, you haven't got any time anyway. That was just one of those things. I fractured my ankle, came back to work, got castigated by my news editor because I was told not to, not to take part in parachuting because how can I resist? Going back to ballooning, what is it that you love about ballooning? Is it the silence? The peace, the quiet, the tranquility, the fact that you can float quietly, silently over the countryside. You can have a conversation with people. You don't have to shout. You have to put the burner on occasionally, of course, to keep the, the air inside the balloon warm. But it's it's not like a constant noise. It's not like, like being in a, a small aeroplane with the engine running all the time. Like, you know, you haven't got the burner on permanently when you're in the balloon. So you've got little bursts of five or ten seconds and then 30 seconds or a minute of complete silence. And that is lovely. Also being in the open. You're in a basket, in a woven wicker basket. It's just a wonderful feeling of freedom. Peter, where were you born? Born in Melbourne, in, in Australia. I'm a sixth-generation Australian, born and bred. My parents were both Australian journalists. Our family moved to England when I was 15, and I think that the main 
consideration in my parents' mind was that they wanted to escape the stultifying dullness and provinciality of 1950s Australia. They did what many had done before them and had done and have done since. People like Clive James, Jermaine Greer, Barry Humphreys, Robert Hughes, the art historian, they all left Australia in the late 50s and early 60s at about the same time we left to come to England because they wanted a new life. They wanted they wanted to get away from what Australians jokingly refer to as the cultural cringe. And in a way, I guess it was a bit dull in those days. Australia is a different place altogether now. It's vibrant, lively, very, very culturally inclined. It has some of the best restaurants in the world. It has theatre. It has the Opera House. It has, it has a, a, it's changed radically since I left in 1958. So what made you go back to live in Australia after all these years? I suppose it was my home. Uh, no, in fact, the real reason is because in 2000, I was diagnosed with leukemia. We were living in Cornwall then, running our business quite happily. And a few months after that diagnosis, it was found that I had renal cancer. I had to have an nephrectomy. I had my left kidney removed. And because of the... Of the of the two things in tandem, um, my, the prognosis wasn't good, and they they thought I might have five years. I'd been given a time span. We didn't know how long that was going to be. And here we are, 20 years on, I'm still here. And hopefully for many more years to come. Peter, thank you for chatting to us today. I should just add that I've been up in a balloon piloted by you many years ago, and it was indeed a truly remarkable experience. That's all for now. If you've enjoyed the show, do please visit our website, actionpacktravel.com, or subscribe on Spotify, Google Podcasts, iTunes, or another of the many platforms that we're on. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with at least one other person. And I am you. And you are me. It's just a crazy storm.